0: So, as has already been stated, we're going to be in chapter 3 of Philippians. And for both sermons, we will be looking at chapter 3, verses 17 through chapter 4, verse 1. Philippians chapter 3, verses 17 through chapter 4. Verse 1, and while you're turning there, I just want to say publicly, thank you so much for having me to your dear pastor, and I want you to know, I told him I'd say this publicly, I love Pastor Rich Barcelos, I love Miss Nan, and I love the Barcelos family, and I've grown to love you all, y'all have been so welcoming and hospitable. Can I say y'all in California? Do y'all understand what I'm saying when I say that? Of course you would say no, dear brother. (laughs) But that type of banter is why I love your pastor. and, and, And not the only reason why, but it is one. So thank you so much for having me. And as I thought about what to bring to this congregation that I've grown to love and feels like a home church of which I've never been a member. I want to say to you all that life is very difficult. We've experienced that globally through the virus, haven't we, or the pandemic, regardless of what you think of the pandemic itself we all live through the effects of the pandemic or the perceived pandemic and what i want to get across in both sermons is that one we need each other and two if we are in christ jesus we will hold fast to glory and that is the truth That's going to keep us going even when life is at its worst. And so if you're a note taker and you want one sentence that sums up what both sermons will be about, it's this sentence. We will hold fast because of the love of God's people and the power of Jesus Christ. We will hold fast because of the love of God's people and the power of Jesus Christ. And I want you to see the love of God's people starting in verses 17 down to 19. 17 down to 19. I want you to see the love of God's people. And in verses 20... Of chapter 3 down to chapter 4, verse 1. I want you to see the power of Jesus Christ. The power of Jesus Christ. And it is because of these two realities that we will hold fast to glory. It's a guarantee. And my plan is I want to walk through the text in the first sermon. And then in the second sermon, I want to deal more with applications or uses or as your pastor calls them, contemplations. So don't leave in between services because the sermon's not really done yet. I I want you all to hear everything that the Lord has for us through me in this text. So, I want us to read the text together and then we'll bow for prayer and then we'll start the preaching proper. God says to us through His servant Paul, starting in verse 17 of chapter 3, Brethren, Join in following my example and note those who so walk as you have us for a pattern. For many walk of whom I have told you often and now tell you even weeping that they are the enemies of the cross of Christ whose end is destruction, whose God is their belly And whose glory is in their shame. Who set their mind on earthly things. Verse 20. For our citizenship is in heaven. From which we also eagerly wait for the Savior. The Lord Jesus Christ. Who will transform our lowly body. That it may be conformed to His Glorious body, according to the working by which he is able even to subdue all things to himself. Therefore, my beloved and longed-for brethren, my joy and crown, so stand fast in the Lord, beloved. This is the word of God. Would you bow? With me for prayer. Father, help me as I preach. May your spirit attend to my words this morning. May your spirit help your people known as Grace Reformed Baptist Church to listen well. Help me to preach well by your Spirit. If you do not help me, this is all for naught. Please give me unction. Give me power. Give me boldness. Give me conviction. Give me love. Give me grace. And may we be transformed through the preaching of your word this morning. As we keep on holding fast for the glory of your great name and praise. It's in the name of your Son Jesus who will do all these things for us. Amen. Amen. So I told you in verses 17 through 19 I want you to see the love of the saints. So another way you could see that point is we as the saints of God should love one another. We as the saints of God should love one another. And when you look at this text, what you see first off is is Paul has been writing and he has been very doctrinal throughout. You look at chapter 2 and you see the famous passage about how the Lord... Jesus in His incarnation emptied Himself and by emptying Himself that happened not by some sort of laying aside of divinity but rather in His emptying that is the very act of Him becoming human and Him assuming human flesh. A better way to say that that the Lord Jesus Christ wrapped Himself in human flesh. Spurgeon says it this way, the infinite became an infant. The infinite became an infant. And in so doing, we have the human man, Jesus Christ, as our chief and primary example. We see that throughout this letter and we see that through other letters written by Paul, that Jesus Christ is... As our chief example because he is the only perfect man that ever lived. And in his God-man existence on earth he perfectly fulfilled the holy law of Almighty God. So he is our example. He is the one to whom we ought to look towards. But for those who have lived the Christian life well and are living the Christian life well, Paul would argue that they too are our examples. Look at what Paul says to the church at Philippi here. Brethren, join in following my example. And not only my example, but note those who so walk as you have us So more than just Paul, for a pattern. Or you could say it another way, for an example. So he is talking about those who were with him and ministering to the church at Philippi. He says to the Philippian church, remember the teaching that you've received from us. Remember how you learned from us how... All of the Old Testament speaks of the glories of Jesus Christ and ultimately is about Him. Remember that. Remember our conduct as well. Remember our way of life. So Paul would have us to know, dear ones, that we are to follow not only the example of Jesus, but all those who have walked in this fallen world before us we can look to them we can be encouraged by them and I would submit to you that this text also applies to one another you are gathered here today not only to worship the Lord Jesus Christ in all his fullness and his glory but also to be encouraged by one another as you sing I love a cappella singing. I wish personally my own church did more of it and the other pastors know that so that wouldn't come as a surprise to them. Most of my church members know it. I love a cappella singing because the only thing you've got to listen to is everybody's voices, no matter how pretty they are or whether they sound like a cat that's that's about to die. It doesn't matter. We are all singing as one together in the Lord Jesus Christ, as we worship Him and glory in what He has done for us. And all that is bound up in the walking together. There are, if I may use a personal example, a lot of people in my situation in Provo, Utah that have left the Church of Jesus Christ, the Latter-day Saints. And they still want to be spiritual, as it were. And in their perceived spirituality, many of them that choose not to go off into atheism or agnosticism, you know what they end up doing. They end up getting into some form of the occult, whether it be full-on witchcraft, Wicca, Uh, native spiritualism, whatever. A lot of them either go into that or they have this kind of reclusive idea of spirituality. Well, they'll go up into the pretty Wasatch Mountains in Provo and they'll just have this idea of me, God, and my Bible. If you think of it sort of like a biblicistic idea to the extreme... just need the Bible. I don't need anything else. And if you ever start thinking that way, dear friends, I want you to run away from that idea. You need your local church in order to walk the Christian life and in order to live out the Christian life. And I would say you don't only just need your local church, but You need the voices of the Christian past to walk out the Christian life. And in so doing, you'll have fullness of joy because you realize that you're not in this alone. When you go through the darkest of times, dear saints, and we all know how dark life is and life can get, You'll know you're not alone. And we'll get more into that in the second service. But he primarily is talking about teaching here, but also life. Life and teaching go together. You see that throughout the book of Jude, false teachers were condemned in the book of Jude, not only for their teaching, but also for their manner of life. Paul has both ideas here. And and he goes on to say that you should follow the example of good churchmen because of the way they walk. And there were many in the Philippian church who had just been converted and he was trying to encourage them and, and... It almost has this idea of a baby. Have any of you ever seen a baby try to walk? And you see a baby and he starts taking his first steps. What's he do? He falls flat on his face. Maybe busts his little face open if he hits something hard. And then he cries. But for most babies, it doesn't deter them from walking. They get up and they try again, and before you know it, one step and falling turns into three steps and falling, and then the five steps and falling. And before you know it, they're running around, getting into all sorts of things that five months ago you were thinking, "Oh my goodness, this is a cute little thing in the crib." Now it's a little gremlin with sin <laughs> running around, getting into everything. So, so you see the same idea here as when Christians walk and we take our steps. We need other Christians to hold us up so that when we do fall, when when we do make sinful mistakes, we've got a community of saints around us that's going to keep our head up. And keep us from getting totally and completely discouraged. Paul goes on to say in verse 18. For many walk of whom I have told you often. And now tell you even weeping. That they are the enemies of the cross of Christ. He Juxtaposes those who walk with the saints against those who walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. That's why I said this text not only has the idea of living life, but also the doctrine that is taught, the teaching that is with some. And I live in a situation, in a context, where I like to tell people that are not in Utah, I'm surrounded by historical, living, breathing heretics. I'm surrounded by people that are enemies of the cross of Christ. And if you're wondering exactly how the members of the Church of Jesus Christ, the Latter-day Saints, commonly called Mormons, are not Christian, I would love to tell you... Know that there's a decent amount of LDS here, and when you see them, know that they are enemies of the cross of Christ, and they will walk you down a path that will lead you to destruction. And there's a sense in which you ought to hate such doctrine, and you ought to pray imprecatory prayers against those organizations. That are enemies of the cross of Christ. If you don't know what imprecatory prayers are, those are prayers of condemnation, of judgment, asking the Lord in his righteousness to take out such organizations. However, we see something very interesting in this text. Notice what he says here. Paul says, I've told you about these enemies before. Now I'm going to tell you again. Notice what he says. Of whom I have told you often. And now tell you even weeping. Even weeping. That idea there of weeping doesn't mean you get choked up. And cry a little at your favorite romantic movie. But that idea of weeping is an absolute willing. Think about, for those of you who know your Bible, the book of Job, after God allowed for him all the catastrophes to happen over his life, what does the book of Job tell us, my friends? He despaired even his own life. It's got that idea. Day of weeping, of bursting into tears. And Paul has that attitude towards these enemies of the cross of Christ. There are many who think that they are being macho by being tough men, by, by never weeping. I I want to tell you that the most manly men in the world are those who weep for the lost. You weep for the heretics that are in your family. And the Apostle Paul models such compassion. And we'll get more into that in the second sermon. But then he goes on in the next two Verses, or rather the next verse, to say this. He starts describing these enemies of the cross of Christ to which He shed big tears over. He says of them, whose end is destruction, in verse 19, whose God is their belly, and whose glory is in their shame, who set their mind, On earthly things. Who set their mind. On earthly things. All of the whose statements. Describe that who statement. So when Paul says. Whose end is destruction. Whose God is their belly. And whose glory is in their shame. That is the outworking. Of setting your mind. Dear saint on earthly things. And such language is graphic because in this we see that the end of them their end game is not goodness. It's it's not glory in the Lord Jesus Christ, but it is eternal judgment away from the blessings and, and goodness of God. It is eternal hellfire Forever and ever and ever and ever. That is what it means, dear ones, to be an enemy of the cross of Christ, both in your doctrine and your teaching and in your life. For those who persist in their sinful teachings and for those who persist in their sinful way of lives, their end is not good they will meet a holy God and they will be found naked in their sin and naked in their depravity and they will have nothing to cover them on that great day. Because you see, dear friends, when it says destruction, it's not talking about eternal death and then that's it. When when the Scriptures talk about destruction, it's an ongoing, everlasting destruction in a resurrected body. And there's debate about whether the punishment is actual and literal hellfire. Or whether the hellfire is figurative for something far, far worse. But whatever it is, I can tell you on the authority of Scripture, it is the unending, unabating, righteous and holy wrath of Almighty God. And on that day, dear friends, every enemy... Of the cross of Christ will shake and tremble and fear and realize, oh dear God, what have I done with my earthly life? This punishment is too great. This this penalty is too great. What am I going to do but gnash and weep for all of eternity? But Paul doesn't stop there. Their way of life in the present is also not good. They're, those who are enemies of the cross of Christ, they have hell on earth. They may yuck it up. They may think that their life is wonderful and they may have all the amenities of the world, but what is really happening to them As while they are indulging in their sin, as we will see in this text, they are really prepping themselves for the destruction that they will bear if they persist in their sinful ways and lifestyle. Paul describes it this way, whose God is their belly and whose glory is in their shame. Whose God is their belly that word belly can also be translated womb. There's debate about what exactly it means. Some think that it means um, like a gluttonous way of life. But I've come down the position of that this is a very Jewish way to say that they have an appetite for their own sin. They drink iniquity like water. They drink guilt like water is the way that Job Says it. And they care nothing about anybody but themselves. A way that you can think of this is simply selfishness. They do not have the fruit of the Spirit love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, and so on and so forth. But they are characterized by the works of the flesh. And they can never be satisfied. And they never will be satisfied. So their appetite for sin, their appetite for all things debaucherous is never ending. And if that's not bad enough, look at what the text says next. And they glory in their shame. The way the New King James puts it, whose glory is in their shame whose glory is in their shame. When you look at Psalm 3, I recently got the joy of preaching Psalm 3 in my own church. David says that God is His glory and the lifter of His head and His shield. But those who are enemies... Of the cross of Christ. The text says. They glory in their shame. Now what does the text mean when it says glory here? Well for David's case. In Psalm 3. Essentially what David is saying is. The best thing about David is God himself. He loved God so much. That He gloried in who and what God is. And with this text, we see that folks, their shame is their glory. That everything about them points to their sinful lifestyle. They're known by their sin. They're known by their depravity. They're known by their debauchery. They can't live without their sin. And they can't live without their false doctrine. Everything that defines them is sinfulness and enmity with the holy and righteous God and His gospel. And we see all of that describes a group of people who set their mind collectively on earthly things. Paul saying, don't follow after those. Don't walk after those. Don't even take baby steps after those whose mind is set on only the passing and fickle things of this world, dear ones. Don't glory in shame with them. Don't let your appetite be one as such. That glories in sin. And don't let your end be eternal destruction. Keep on persevering. Keep on holding fast. Keep on looking to Jesus because of our blessed hope. And our blessed hope is found in the power of Jesus Christ. In the power of Jesus Christ. That's my second. Big point. We see that in verse 20 down to the end of chapter 4, verse 1. For our citizenship is in heaven from which we also eagerly wait for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, he says... For our citizenship is in heaven. Notice that the false teachers have their mind on earthly things and then right after that he says, that's not us. That's not the church. This is not all there is for the church of Jesus Christ. The true church of Jesus Christ. We have our registry elsewhere as citizens. Another way you could translate Late that word citizenship is commonwealth. I know we have, I didn't tell him I was going to do this, but we have a dear brother here with us from the state of Maine. And he loves New England. And those of you who are like me, I'm, I'm a Texan, so everything's bigger in Texas, yes. Uh, when people say that Ed is from Utah... I'm quick to correct them and say, no, 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 I am from Texas. And those of you who are from states and you're proud of your state in in a human way, in an earthly way, you you don't like it when, when you're from Michigan. Somebody thinks you're from Arkansas. It just doesn't drive that well. Or if you're a native Californian, And somebody says you're from Texas. You just want to hit them in the nose. In your flesh, don't you? Paul is saying in a heavenly way, be proud of your citizenship in heaven. And not pride in a sinful sense, but glory in the fact that you've got something better waiting for you than this old, dark world. That you can set your mind on things above rather than having this as your only hope in life and even in death. Paul says, where we are going, it's going to be glorious. And our citizenship, dear friends, the tense of the language here would have us believe that it is as good as done. You are a citizen of heaven, not when you die, but if you've placed your faith alone, your hope alone, your trust alone, in Christ alone. He's already transferred you from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light. So your citizenship is there right now. That, uh, that truth... I don't turn this into a Pentecostal church without the tongues with so much joy because we realize that no matter how bad life gets, we've got something better waiting for us. And it was purchased by the cross and resurrection of Calvary in Jesus Christ. It is all because of Jesus Christ that we have citizenship in heaven. And we're not a denizen of hell, dear friends. And it goes on to say, not only is our citizenship already there by the power and work of Jesus Christ, but we're also awaiting, I think I can even say this, the rest of the Gospel. We are waiting for Jesus Christ. And here's where we really get this power aspect come in. Look at what he says For our citizenship is in heaven, from which we also eagerly wait for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body that it may be conformed to his glorious body according to the working by which He is able even to subdue all things to Himself. In this text, dear friends, we have a marvelous display of the divinity of the Lord Jesus Christ. And in this text, what we see is that not only are we citizens of heaven, but we're going to get a brand new body by which to live out our eternal citizenship. Look at what the text says. We eagerly wait for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform. It's where we get our English word metamorphosis from. That same Greek word there. It's very similar if I were to say it to you. He's going to transform our lowly body this body of sin and it's going to be like his glorious body and he's going to do that by his divine power and we're going to have a glorified human body just like our Lord Jesus has in his human nature now I want to be very careful here where I'm at there's a lot of folks that believe that they will be deity if they're good enough and their religion what I'm not saying is that we will become like God in his essence that is not what I'm saying. We will have glorified human flesh and that will be without sin without corruption and that will happen because of the power of Jesus Christ and that is all one force in the death. Burial, resurrection, and ascension of Christ. And it will be realized when He comes back. And we will be resurrected if we're not alive when He comes back. And we're going to get a beautiful body. Now, I'm not blind. I see a lot of you dear saints are older than your preacher this morning. If you are a Christian, even though you age in this body, You've got the body coming for you that will not hurt, that will not age, that, that will not suffer in the sense that we know suffering. And on that day, I don't know what it's going to be like, but we're all going to sing out glorious hallelujah, when we realize the power of the Lord Jesus Christ. And... You're here today and you're realizing, oh my goodness, I've never, ever, ever placed my hope alone, my faith alone, my trust alone in Jesus. Do that today. Look to Him and live. Look to Him and live. Look to Him and have hope and have joy. And when you go through things in this life, and we'll, Talk more about that in the next sermon. You can have such exquisite joy. Peter says it this way. Joy inexpressible in trials. I know many of you know what I'm talking about. Because you've lived hard lives. And many of you that are older saints experientially know these truths more than your preacher this morning. But I want to encourage you by way of reminder that this great God is coming back and He's going to make us new. And He is going to, as the text says, subdue all things to Himself. Matthew Henry puts it this way. He he essentially says that the subduing all things to himself has idea of judgment in it what we already talked about with the end of destruction but it also has the idea of making uh, all things new and that what we see promised in Psalm 2 that even though the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain God's already won through his anointed and We are one day going to see that joyful reality. And he closes with the last verse. Therefore, my beloved and longed-for brethren, my joy and crown, so stand firm in the Lord, beloved. Were, Were you listening very closely? I said, therefore, my beloved. And then the last word, it's spelled the same way. I I said, beloved. It's the difference between an adjective and a noun. When, When you read Scripture, dear ones, make sure you're paying attention to the actual words of the text because there's two different realities there he, he calls them his beloved in noun f- in, in adjective form and then he calls them um, be- beloved in noun form at the end and in both ways he is saying I describe you by my love and you are in and of yourselves ones who are love that's just what you are And it's such a beautiful thing to see Paul's pastoral heart. And he also says throughout this letter, he longs for them and they are his joy and crown. Keep in mind he's under arrest when he's writing this. He's in chains. And, And he's able to rejoice in the work that God is doing because of the glorious realities of the love of the saints and the power of Jesus Christ, both right now and the power to come. And that's our blessed hope. In the second sermon, we'll get more into what that means for right now for us. But I want you to glory in just how good our God has been to us in the gospel of Jesus Christ. We have each other and we have the hope and promise of His power. And that will hold us fast to glory. Would you pray with me? Father, I thank You so much for the truths of Your Word. I pray that this church by Your power and by each other, hold fast to your gospel. May the bright light that is in grace Reformed Baptist Church never be snuffed out. And I thank you for this church. As you know, Father, I told them at the very beginning, they're like a church family of which I've never been a covenant member. and And, and I just thank you for putting this church family in my life. And we pray all these things in the name of Your Son, Jesus. Amen.